Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton. To get notices of our new Bible examination programs, go to our website, whtt.org, and enter your email address in the subscribe to WHTT box on the right-hand side of the website. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Bible examination, we're continuing on in our look at the book of Hebrews. We're in chapter 9, and uh, we'll be starting at verse 6. Mark will be talking about the Old Covenant sacrifices versus the New Covenant sanctuaries and sacrifices. Let's open with a word of prayer. Leslie, please. Lord, we thank you for this time we have together and how fortunate we are to be able to to study your word and learn more about you and to be able to worship you. Uh, help us to be good stewards of your word and to share it with others. And we thank you uh, and we ask that this uh, Bible study be um, strengthened in our hearts, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Leslie. Amen. And welcome, Mark. Well, thank you. It's good to be back with everyone. Uh, chapter 9 and the first part of Chapter 10 are right at the heart of what uh, we're trying to examine in this letter to Hebrews, and we're seeing some of the uh, ceremonial details of the Old Covenant that our writer is pointing out illustrated the work of Christ. Of course, it was in the future for most of the history of Israel as a nation. And now, as he's writing, it, it's right at the end, as he's alluded to um, several times already in the letter. But let's pick up where we were in chapter 9, and let's read, if we could, uh, verses 6 through 10. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry, but only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and the sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings external regulations applying until the time of the new order. All right, thank you very much. That 
paragraph ended up uh, with a new order in Leslie's Bible. In my translation, it's talking about the time of Reformation that the gifts and sacrifices offered under the Old Covenant lasted until the time of Reformation or the new order or the new age, of course. It would all be the same thing. And and this letter is being written right on the brink of the new age. Those of us who looked at the book of Acts together a few months ago should remember this time of Reformation because Peter talked about it in Acts chapter 3 as he is speaking to the Judean nation uh, that had gathered there in Jerusalem. Israel was being transformed as we looked at in the book of Acts. And that's also what our writer here in this letter is saying as well. The old Israel was characterized by these uh, physical sacrifices and matters of food and drink and so on, which were temporary in nature. And again, it's so sad and ironic that our dispensational and Zionist friends are trying as hard as they can to bring back all of these things which were only imposed until the time of Reformation, which was in the first century, at least as far as the writer of this letter was concerned. Now he's starting off talking in verse 6 about the priest going into the first tent, which is the holy place, and we talked a little bit about that before, but the holy place is a parable of the present time, our writer says. It is uh, uniquely illustrating this time between the cross and the destruction of the temple in which the end of the old age is lingering and the new age is beginning and they're, they're overlap and that's really what the holy place in the temple or tabernacle was it was a it was kind of a halfway house between god who dwells in infinity and eternity and in incorruptibility, which is depicted by the Holy of Holies, and then the world outside where man dwells, very corruptible. So that you have corruptibility on the outside of the tent, and you have incorruptibility uh, at, in the innermost tent, and then you have the holy place, which has some characteristics of each. And so... It is a, uh, a parable for the present day, as our writer, I was trying to find which verse that is, but uh, it's right close here in chapter 8 or chapter 9. And the priest can go into this first tent continually to carry out their sacred duties, but they're never allowed to go into the second tent. Only the high priest, uh, as we look at verse 7, can go in there, and he can only go in there once a year, and he has to take blood when he goes in there to offer for himself and then for the people's sins of ignorance. No, there's the verse I'm looking for right there, yeah, verse 9. In this way, the Holy Spirit shows that while the first tent still stands, the way into the holy place has not yet been opened up. This intermediate holy place serves 
has a kind of a double barrier. Each side of it has a veil over it, one between it and the world outside, the courtyard, and one between it and the dwelling place of God in the Holy of Holies on the inside. There's two veils blocking the way. Those were big, thick, uh, long uh, veils back then, right? Uh, big curtains. Yes. And the, the inner one at least had uh, images of the cherubim woven into it where they could not be separated like embroidery where you could pick out stitch by stitch. The, uh, the cherubim were integral to the inner veil representing that they guarded the access to prevent man from coming to God as they had been placed at the eastern gate of Eden back in Genesis. Um, so we learn in passing in verse 8 that the temple of Jerusalem is in all likelihood still standing as this letter is being written. And so our writer says, because it is still standing, the way into the holy place, and he's referring to the holy of holies, has not yet been opened up. So as we saw going through the book of Acts, we see the same idea here in this letter to the Hebrews that God's work was not completely finished at the cross. At the essential work of the apostles in carrying the gospel to the known world in one generation was an essential part of God's plan. It was not an afterthought. It was uh, in mind from before the beginning of time. And so there was a, you know, there was more work to be done after the cross. Not to in any way say that the cross was not the greatest single event in all human history, because it certainly was. But um, when Christ said it is finished before he physically died, he was referring to his sinless life under the law of Moses, which enabled the rest of the plan to unfold just as God had foreordained. And, uh, you know, he, in many other ways, he talked about events that would happen um, after that time, uh, all the work that the apostles would be doing and so on. And we've looked at that in the Gospel of John, in the book of Acts, and so on and so forth. We see all, this all presented consistently in virtually every uh, letter of the New Testament. So these sacrifices and offerings are still going on as our writer is writing. But these gifts and sacrifices, he tells us, can never give the worshiper a clean conscience. None of the ceremonies of the Law of Moses, none of the animal offerings can clean the conscience of the worshiper. And he feels this is a very significant point. The gospel of Christ is infinitely more powerful in this regard because it is not dependent upon our ability to live a sinless life or to go a whole day or an hour or 15 minutes without committing a sin 
all of that burden is now cast on Jesus Christ. And this was not an option that they had under the Old Covenant. Old physical Israel did not have any way to clean the conscience regarding sin. So not only were old offerings um, imperfect and incomplete, but they were also uh, temporary. As we started off talking about verse 10, they are only imposed until the time of Reformation. And in fact, I guess that's how we titled our entire look at the book of Acts was the restoration or reformation of Israel from a flawed physical nation into a perfect uh, spiritual nation. And so it's an exciting time, our writer certainly thinks. All right, any uh, thoughts or comments here, uh, verses 6 through 10? Well, it reminds me of the book, uh, The Church is Israel Now, um, that I read years ago. It's just a compilation of Bible verses, but uh, um, thank you for reminding me of The Church is Israel Now. <laughs> it is. Or, or I might state it backwards, Israel is the church now. Uh, both, <laughs> yeah. you know, both... Uh, convey the meaning that God intended. The church, however, is not a proper name. We tend to think of it as a proper name, the church of God, but it's just the Greek noun, common noun, assembly, and it's really describing God's people, Israel, and Israel is a proper noun, a proper name, meaning those who rule with God. And so it's a subtle distinction but I think very important because it would it would undo Christian Zionism, number one, and it would undo institutional religion or the church as an institution. Uh, both concepts, I believe, are doing uh, great harm to the cause of Christ in our present day and age. We need to go back to uh, the Bible. And I'm glad you are working on it here. I appreciate it. All right. We've covered everything there. Okay, well, let's read verses 11 through 14 then, please. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more, then, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God? All right, great, thank you. Again, your translation differs a little from mine. 
mine in verse 11 says, Christ has appeared as the high priest of the good things which have come to pass. And yours was a little uh, different than that, but I can't remember exactly what you just read. It says good things that are already here. Okay. It's saying the same thing, but using different English words to describe Mm -hmm. the same concept. So these good things have come to pass obviously involve this reformation of Israel from verse 10. So that's really good news for Israel. They had uh, a hard life under the law of Moses. So Christ has brought them the things that have already happened, have already come to pass. And he has opened up that veil that separates the outer courtyard from the holy place. And I believe that this is what actually occurred when he died on the cross. The outer veil would have split. Most scholars over the centuries have thought or just assumed that it was the inner veil, but it makes more sense if it was that outer veil. No one could even see the inner veil anyway, but the outer one, if it split, it would have been visible to all those uh, observing from the temple courtyards outside. And when he died, that would have split. That would have opened the way into the holy place. He had no right as a human being, uh, as a living person, rather, to enter in there because he was not of the tribe of Levi. He was of the tribe of Judah. But because of his sinless life under the law of Moses, he could enter in by right into this halfway house between corruption and incorruptibility. He went in there. He told the thief on the cross, tomorrow you will be with me in paradise. This holy place represents this halfway ground paradise or the Garden of Eden where man and God could both come together to commune together. And even the orations in there have somewhat of a garden motif to them. The seven-branch stand presents the tree of life that was in the Garden of Eden and the Spirit of God being there uh, in that place. The the oil lamps uh, were a symbol of the Spirit of God being in that place. And the 12 loaves of showbread were representative of God's people being in that place. So God and his people coming together there. And it's also kind of indicative of the righteous dead up until this time. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Samuel and all the great heroes of faith that we'll hear more about later in this letter. But, you know, they, they haven't been really brought fully into God's presence because the redemptive work of Christ had not been completed at the time they physically died. And we get kind of a picture of their state in that story Jesus told about Lazarus and the rich man. And this beggar, Lazarus, ends up in a place called Abraham's bosom. And I used to believe, and many, many Christians still believe, that this continues on now into the new age just as it existed in the old age. But I have since realized, no, Jesus Christ conquered death 
and he emptied out Abraham's bosom. It was kind of tied into this picture of a holy place, and there is no place in the picture of the New Jerusalem that we see in Revelation. It is the city four square. It has the same proportions as the Holy of Holies, and there is no anteroom or outer chamber attached to it. That chamber was an image of the old age or of the overlap between the old and the new age, and there is no part nor lot of it in the new age in which we find ourselves living at this time. He talks about the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, not belonging to this creation. And this is referring to, I believe, the New Jerusalem depicted in the book of Revelation, and it's referring to the uh, new creation, or those who are a new creature in Christ. And when we looked at the Gospel of John, we saw how that it started with a prologue, which was a kind of a mimicking of the days of creation from Genesis 1 and 2. And it's really building up to the new creation, which is the climax of the Gospel of John. When uh, Christ dies, his sight is pierced, and out comes blood and water. And a, I believe at that moment in time, a new family of God is born, is brought forth uh, by the death of Christ on the cross. And when Christ meets Mary in the garden after he uh, takes back his fleshly body, he talks about my God or my Father and your Father. So the reconciliation of Israel to the Father has been completed in the redemptive work of Christ at that time. And this new family that reformed and restored Israel is now a reality. And all of these concepts that are tied up in this paragraph here of chapter 9. The entire physical creation, the entire physical universe as we know it, is only incidental to God's eternal purpose, which is to create a people for his own possession, which is the spiritual Israel. The physical creation is only to serve as a dwelling place for mankind, which, as part of the new creation, restored man can now serve as the temple of the living God, as God's Spirit indwells our hearts. And the Gospel of John talks a lot about that. We become the dwelling place of God on earth. And this is the entire theme of the Bible, from the Garden of Eden to the end of Revelation, which the climactic scene opens up there with the announcer telling us, Behold, the dwelling place of man is now with God in heaven. But wait, that's not what it says. That's just what we think it says. That's what all of the hymns in our books think it says. But it, in reality, it really says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is now with man on earth. The new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven and descends to earth. So this is what our writer is talking about the new creation. This new Jerusalem is a perfect tent, not made with human hands.
the new creation exists by virtue of the blood of Christ, not the blood of cows and goats like the old law. But Jesus, by virtue of his own blood, can go right into the Holy of Holies once and for all. And this occurred 40 days after his resurrection when he ascended from the Mount of Olives, I believe. And I believe there's a good chance at that time, we don't know this, but I believe there's a good chance that as he ascended, as his fleshly body was consumed, as he translated into the spiritual realm, then the inner veil between the holy place and the holies would have split, demonstrating that he has entered once and for all into the holy of holies and has procured eternal redemption for us and for all those who were of old Israel who were awaiting the redemption of Messiah. All of us are adopted into God's family through this one single sacrifice of Christ. All possible because he Immortal God, incorruptible God, took on human flesh, human corruptibility, and yet he remained uncorrupted, followed the law perfectly. By virtue of that, his blood became the perfect sacrifice, and it cleansed all of those uh, who had been following the law of Moses trusting in God for salvation rather than their own uh, works. And, of course, this was the great crime of the Pharisees. If you recall, in the 23rd chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus just lets the scribes and Pharisees, he pronounces seven woes upon them. And you can kind of sum all that up by saying that they thought they had earned a right to walk right in to God's presence by their perfect keeping of the law of Moses. Does that uh, does that make sense? They didn't need a Savior. They didn't need a Messiah because they were perfect. They were so perfect. They even took a tenth of the herbs out of their window planters and brought that down as part of their tithe at the temple. And so Jesus basically unleashed the fury of hell upon these self-righteous individuals because God knew from before the beginning that no human being could keep the law of Moses and walk into God's presence by right, by demand. They could only do it by the grace of God. Moving into verse 13, our writer acknowledges that the sacrifices, the blood of, of goats and bulls, uh, he also brings in the ashes of a heifer. I believe that's out of Numbers 19, where they had to have the perfect red heifer. And they burned this heifer outside the camp, and ashes were then used for ceremonially purifying people that had become ceremonially unclean, particularly people that had had contact with a human corpse. And it was very, very hard to find a heifer that 
met the, the qualifications uh, described there in the Law of Moses. And, and we may have mentioned before, we have a Christian Zionist cattle rancher in Nebraska who has devoted the bulk of his life and earnings trying to rebreed a perfect red heifer so that these ceremonies could be restarted in Jerusalem. But these had ceremonial implications, but they really did not take away sin. And in verse 14, he goes on, how much more effective is the blood of Christ who offered himself to God as an unblemished sacrifice, cleanse our conscience from dead works so as to worship the living God. And it, of course, he says also through the eternal spirit or God's eternal spirit. So there was some positive effect of these animal sacrifices, but they were nothing compared to the blood of Christ, which does cleanse our conscience from dead works. We're not dependent on works as the Pharisees or the present-day LDS church to earn our way into God's presence. We don't have that burden which is impossible to bear. We cast all of that on Jesus Christ. I'll add one other concept, which is that the fleshly body of Christ also served as a halfway house, a place where God and man could meet in the person of Jesus Christ. He was fully human in the flesh, but he was also fully God in the spirit. And so that holy place in the tabernacle is also kind of tied in to the fleshly body of Christ and we're just we're told that the veil was the flesh of Christ so when that veil was rent the first time again I believe when his body died on the cross the first veil was opened and then he takes his body back up again for 40 days then he ascends from the Mount of Olives and becomes spirit. And I believe the flesh was consumed uh, in fire at that time, just like the heifer's body was consumed by fire in order to create the ashes of atonement. So another way to look at it is that Christ's human body was the transitional tabernacle of God. You have the old tabernacle, then the temple, the Solomon's temple, and then the second temple, which became Herod's temple. And God really didn't dwell in that second temple like he had the tabernacle in the first temple. His spirit never descended into the Holy of Holies. The Ark of the Covenant was lost before the second temple was dedicated. The throne room was empty in Israel for all practical purposes. And they're waiting for God to come back, but God doesn't come back to dwell in the Holy of Holies. He comes back to dwell in the body of Jesus of Nazareth. And so God dwelt in the human body of Jesus. And that only lasted until his new body could be created, that new creation that we spoke of earlier. And 
there was no need for a physical body. Well, now there's certainly no need for Christ to have a physical body because he dwells in his spiritual body of believers. It's apparently a critical part of Christian Zionist uh, teaching that Christ is sitting in heaven in his physical body, and he is going to return to earth in that same physical body. The fact that that totally negates the importance of the spiritual body of Christ uh, sadly should come as no surprise to us because the whole Christian Zionist dispensational view places the emphasis on physical Israel, not on the church or the spiritual body of God that was Christ's purpose from before the beginning of the earth to create. All right, I've talked long enough. Any uh, last thoughts uh, here before we close out tonight's session? Well, I remember uh, some friends who mentioned that we have Jesus inside of us, so if I'm Leslie Fort, then I'm Leslie Jesus Fort, in that I have Jesus inside of me. Those of us who have asked Jesus into our heart, we have Jesus with us wherever we go. Uh, Yes, and it's so much simpler to read the Bible with that purpose in mind, that that was God's eternal purpose, was to cleanse the heart of mankind so that he could dwell in our heart. But if he's dwelling in heaven out beyond the furthest galaxy, and he's left us behind and we're waiting for him to come back, you know, how do you reconcile that with the idea that he is dwelling in your heart? But if you realize that those are just human ideas, the Bible is very consistent in saying that the kingdom of God came without observation and it exists in the hearts of the believers, then it's so much easier than trying to reconcile that God has three different bodies at the same time or or something weird like that. He's Emmanuel with us, and now Jesus is within us as well. Absolutely. And a lot of these Christmas songs, you know, have a lot of good thought and good Bible teaching uh, in them. Now, some don't, but a lot of them do. And a lot of them really emphasize that when Christ came, he accomplished everything that God needed for him to do. He did not leave anything undone. He did not fail in any way. He accomplished his every purpose and he is now with us uh, in our hearts. It's so much more exciting than the failed dispensational gospel, in my opinion. I'd like to say, like in First Corinthians 13, love never fails, and Jesus proves it. <laughs> yes, excellent. Yes, exactly. All right. Well, thank you, Mark, for the lesson, and thanks, Leslie, for your comments. Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcast. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org. 
for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also at whtt.org, you can watch for free our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Join us in our efforts to wake the town and tell the people. Start small, think big, and press on towards the straight gate.